Amen and amen. But if you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Psalm 119. And we're in verse 73 this evening, Yud, with the Word of God open, let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, we thank You that though there are many voices outside of us and inside of us telling us to flee like a bird to the mountain, for behold, the wicked bend their bow, and they set the arrow upon the string to shoot from the darkness of the upright of heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When it seems as if culture and this world are spinning out of control, O Lord, we lift our eyes to the heavens and see you, your throne in heaven. And from that throne, O God, you look out with your eyelids, testing the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence your soul hates. Upon the wicked you will rain snares, Fire and brimstone and a burning wind will be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. You love righteousness, and the upright will behold your face. We come this evening, Father, longing for a glimpse of your face this evening in your word, that our hearts should be comforted and buoyed up amidst the trials and difficulties of this vain and wicked world. We offer these prayers, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119, verse 73. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Once again, this evening, we find the psalmist under the gun. Arrogant, insolent men are still attacking him, spreading lies about him and falsehood about him. The insolent, you'll see them there in verse 76, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. We met them before in the previous stanza, verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I have, I keep your precepts. And then they're also present in the next stanza, verse 86, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. These are wicked men. They're, they occur six times in this psalm. We met them first of all in verse 21. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from 
your commandments. These are men who are not true to God. They wander. Um, all who wander are not lost, Tolkien said. You see it in the back of people's cars. But all who wander don't always come back again after they finish their wandering. And the instruments are like that. They're men who are full of themselves and empty of God. They're arrogant and proud and puffed up like a big, fat South American toad. And these men are constantly oppressing the psalmist, digging pits for him to fall into and putting him under pressure, like in Psalm verse 122. So, they're all over this psalm, and they're here in this verse, and in the last verse, he's under um, attack, as it were, again. Now, the structure of this particular stand is interesting. It's a, excuse me, it's a chiastic structure, um, which is a big word for a simple idea. It's, a, it's like a ham sandwich, two pieces of bread, um, two pieces of ham, and a piece of cheese in the middle, right? Um, and a chiastic structure, by and large, puts the emphasis on the center point. So, um, you often see it described like A, A, B, B, C, C, and D in the middle, right? And D is the, is the emphasis. Well, if you look at the psalm here, you'll notice the first and the last verse, we'll call them A, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. And then at the end, the second A in verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. So the concern in both the first and the last verse is obedience to God's commandments, right? Then in B, which is B1, you'll find there in verse 74, and then B2 in verse 79, you'll see the same theme, those who fear you. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. And then verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies, right? Then zip in another level to see. And you'll see there in 75 and um, 78, and notice the contrast here are the righteous, truthful rules of God, or the dependable ways of God, and the lying ways of men. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In accordance with your amen-like character, you might say, you've afflicted me. But compare that to verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts, right? So, it's not the same idea, but it's a contrasting idea, the faithful ways of God and the faithless ways, the ways of men. And then the D segment is the, are the middle two verses, which carry the idea of God's ever-present, never-failing covenant mercy. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Now, sometimes um, chiastic structures are easier to imagine than they are to see, but that looks pretty clear to me as you go in in the sandwich from the bread to the, the ham in the middle, kosher ham, of course. But it's, it's um, hesed. Um, let your steadfast love comfort me. Hesed, of course, is God's stubborn determination to love you and be kind to you, no matter what you deserve, 
no matter how long it takes and no matter how much it costs him. He's committed to you stubbornly. He'll hang on to you like a terrier with a tug toy. He'll not let you go. And then mercy in verse 77, let your mercy come to me, is the Hebrew word rachamim, which actually is mercies, or more better, compassions. It's how fathers feel about their children. Other father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, Psalm 103, verse 13. And so mothers feel about their babies. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast or have no compassion, rachmim, for the child she has born? Though she may forget, I'll not forget you, God says, save engraved you in the palms of my hand, right? Which is exactly the thing Israel was always doubting. Israel has said, the Lord has forsaken me, my God has forgotten me. And Yahweh says, can't really, seriously, can a mother forget her baby at her breast, have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget you. There was a time, I'll never forget it, when I walked in and I, I realized my mom didn't quite know who I was. It was a very, very disconcerting moment. I got up to leave the room and my mom said to my dad, who's that young man? Though she may forget you, I will not forget you, God says. See, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands, right? Compassions. And the word carries the idea, the best way I can put it into English is the awe factor, um, that your heart just goes out to your child, right? You drive up to the school, and there's your, your, your wee boy in the playground, and his tie is over here, and his, his knees are torn, and his nose is bloody, and some bullies punched him in the nose and stolen his, his lunch money. And he's crying. He's about six, seven years of age. And he's crying all by himself. And you just stop the car. And you jump out. It's still in day. It keeps on going and crashing into the fountain in the school parking lot. And you're running across to your, your boy your, with your feet. But your heart gets to him before your feet do. Right? You can't look at your son who's just been bullied by an ignoramus and feel nothing. Your heart is moved. It goes out to him. That's the idea behind um, compassions or mercy as it's translated here. And it's plural. Let your compassions. It's, it's, there's a plurality, rachmim in the Hebrew. Your, your compassions come to me that I may live. It's the same word used in Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His compassions or mercies, as the ESV put it, never come to an end. Heaven and earth shall pass away. Your sins shall pass away. The wicked shall pass away. Satan shall pass away. But the compassions of the Lord will never, ever come to an end. It's a bottomless, shoreless, fathomless ocean of compassion. Isn't he lovely? And all of that is in this psalm, which carries the idea again of how do you respond when the wicked attack you? Because um, that's what the psalmist is doing here, right? How do you respond when men are out to get you? Like the time when I was in, in pediatrics and there was a, a, a young doctor who um, 
almost killed a patient one night because she didn't come to see him. And I I told her again and again and again, this patient was very sick. And it was my first night on call in pediatrics, and she patronized me. And she's one of the senior residents, and she said, don't be silly, Neil, you're overreacting. I said, I'm not. This patient is really sick. You need to come and see them. Just follow the protocol. It'll be fine. She's watching friends up in the doctor's room. And she didn't uh, come down. And... um, but in God's mercy, I had, I had uh, kept record, seven, ten past seven, spoke to Dr. McKnight, blah, 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 blah. She said I'm overreacting. Fifth, quarter past seven, spoke to Dr. McKnight, told me to calm down, follow the protocol. So it all documented the notes. And so whenever she came down at 7.45 or whatever, and the patient was really sick, almost dead, and being rushed to ICU, she told all the nurses um, that, it, that I, I had not told her how sick the patient was, but it was in the notes. And I was standing in ICU watching her race around the bed trying to help this patient with all the nurses and so forth and seeing my medical career in one sense flash before my eyes because she was a very persuasive liar. And in God's providence, um, the most senior, the child of diabetes, right? And uh, diabetic ketoacidosis to be precise, and, which is very serious in children, medical emergency. And in God's providence, the most senior diabetic physician in Northern Ireland walked into ICU. He shouldn't have been there. He was out at the theater with his wife, was driving home, felt very tired, knew there was always coffee on the go in ICU. He pulled in to get a cup of coffee, walked in, saw me standing there, saw the chaos. What's going on, Neil? And I told him, showed him the notes. He said, you leave it to me. I'll take care of it. And that, in God's providence, saved my life that night. Well, fast forward a couple of years, I was a bit more senior, and Dr. McKnight was much more senior, and I went to a new hospital where she was there, and she made it clear to me she was going to destroy me. And uh, she was out to get me, and she was lying. And I went to speak to an, one of the senior doctors in the hospital, and as, as God would have providence, he was a Christian. I didn't know he was a Christian. He prayed with me, and he said to me, Neil, he said, She's going to be lying about you to the other doctors, spreading all kinds of trouble and, and, and deceit about you. Just keep your nose clean. Be very careful. Do your job. Walk closely with God. And don't descend to the same level. But it was an awful few months because um, I knew she was out to get me. And it was, it was, it was, she, it was, I'd walk into the doctor's room and the conversation would stop. And they'd all look at me. And I knew Eugene was, you know running the proverbial. And so it was terrible. She was out to get me. She was lying. She was smearing me with falsehood. And there were a number of remarkable providences before it was all said and done that God delivered me again from her hands. But how do you respond in those situations? Have you ever been in a situation like that? I'm sure many of you have. Um, in the armed forces, in business, um, in school, people are out to get you. What do you do? How do you respond? And that's what this paragraph is about, I think. And there are a number of things we can do. First of all, before you do anything else, think much more about God than you think about them. Right? Look at the, look at the verses. Now, remember the structure, right? If, if, if 76 is the mountaintop and 77, these are the mountaintop verses, right? 73, 74, 75, 76 and 77 are all about God. He speaks about God to his soul before he ever speaks about the wicked. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. 
Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. And only then, after he spent a jolly lot of time thinking about God, does he talk about the wicked. And you see the psalmist do that repeatedly. Most amazingly of all, if you keep your finger there in Psalm 139, now we've seen this before, but it's worth repeating. We're not going to spend long here, but Psalm 139 is that famous psalm that you always say in your fridge, you know, Lord, you have searched me, you know me, you know, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, all these wonderful verses. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence and so forth? If I take the wings of the dawn and fly at light speed to the ends of the earth, even there your hand will find me. And all those beautiful verses that you find on your fridge, right? But you never find at the end of the psalm, right, after all this gorgeous, you know, um, these verses that are just ripe for the snowy winter in Vermont, um, the Thomas Kincaid painting, where even the snow looks warm, and... Um, these beautiful verses. And then suddenly, out of the blue in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And you think, he poured sour milk in your coffee, David. Where did that come from? I mean, it, it, the psalm was so warm and kind and soft and devotional, and then suddenly, bam! <laughs> did you have this, like, spare stanza somewhere that you just kind of what do I do with it? Oh, I know, I'll stick it in here. End of Psalm 139. They'll never notice. Um, no, that's, what, that's the life situation David finds himself in. The wicked are out to get him. Bloodthirsty men are hounding him down. And yet he spends verse after verse after verse after verse, 16 verses to be precise, filling his mind about God before he ever gets to the wicked. And even at the end, O oh Lord, search me and know me and try my heart and see if there be any grievous way in me, any way that brings grief to me or grief to others and lead me in the everlasting way. His priorities are amazing I want, it's not so much that I want less of the wicked in my life, I want less wickedness in my life, my own wickedness. Deal with me, Lord. It's amazing. And so it's one of the great lessons of the Christian life. Talk to yourself more about God than about your problems. And you'll find your problems shrink to their proper size. Either God will be big and your problems will be small, or your problems will be big and God is small. And it all comes in how you think in your head whether you talk to yourself or whether you listen to your doubts. That's the first thing. The second thing is to realize that God works even in the darkest situation. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. What he's saying here is, you made me who I am, and therefore, by inference, I can be sure you have placed me where I am. There's a famous painting by a French painter, Paul Gauchin, heretofore unknown to me, but um, he painted it in 1897 in Tahiti, and it's one of those weird paintings, kind of impressionist, I don't know, weird, that's probably the wrong word for it, but everything's the wrong colors, and there's women sitting down on the ground, and various states of undress. There's a goat and a, and a goose. In the middle of it all, there's a woman reaching up for fruit from a tree who's probably Eve, I think. I'm not a painting dreamologist, but that's what I suspect. She's Eve. Um, in the middle of it all. But what's interesting is in the top corner of the painting, the, it, it's as if the canvas has been pulled back 
and he's written three questions. They're in French. Du venons-nous? Que sommes-nous? Où allons-nous? Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? They're the three basic questions of life. Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? Where are we going? And you'll never answer those questions properly if you don't begin with the creation of God, the purposeful, personal creation of God, and therefore, by inference, His providential plan. Your hands, the hands-on job, made and fashioned me. So David thought about in Psalm 119, um, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb, right? Tender, purposeful. And in both these psalms, the psalmist connects his trouble to his creation and to his creator. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Lord, he's saying, if you made my body, you've got to help me think all this through in my mind. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, the last verse, that I may not be put to shame. Here's the key thing. As the psalmist fills his mind with God, he remembers that his first priority is not to get out of judge. It's not to get his own back on these wicked people. It's to obey God. It's amazing how often we forget that. You punch me, I'm going to punch you back. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You slander me, I'm going to slander you back. That's, that's, the, that's the law of the world, dog eat dog. But the psalmist remembers there's a higher authority. There's a creator. I am not the author of my own story. I am a guest in somebody else's universe. I am a character in somebody else's story. And therefore, I'm a man under authority, and I must obey my Creator. And you'll not find that law, that logic, if you think more about your trouble and the troublemakers in your life than you do about your God and your Creator. God is at work in the darkest situation. Also, we need help to see that God is at work at cross-purposes with the wicked. The wicked are out to get Him. The insolent um, have wronged me with falsehood, verse 78. They're hurting me with their lies. But they aren't the only actors in the psalmist's life. God is also at work. The, the echo of, of C1, 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. Your providential ordering of the universe is righteous, is the idea. More than God's law, it's God's providence. And that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. And that's, a, that's, that's an amazing 
It, it's Joseph in, in, in Genesis. You sent me, God sent me here before you. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That the wicked are never the only ones acting in your life. God is also acting in them and through them to accomplish His plans. If you think only of the wicked, it'll make you bitter. But if you think also of God, it'll make you sweet. And you're sensible people. Are you going to get all head up over the second causes? Are you going, to, are you going to hate the surgeon because the scalpel is sharp and painful? Or are you going to see the hand holding the scalpel? It's the hand of your Creator who's also your Father, and who loves you more than His Son's life. And He loves you more than we love our earthly children, because often we won't cause our children pain, because we think we love them too much. But God loves us better than that. He will not keep us back. Um, he will not allow us to sin with impunity. He will discipline us because He loves us, because He loves our holiness more than our happiness. In faithfulness, you've afflicted me. And the affliction, it seems to me in the context, of these wicked men attacking him. And so, it's not necessarily saying that God is, is spanking David for some sin he's committed. We often think that way. Not necessarily. It's just acknowledging that God is the source of this affliction. And God has a lesson to learn. And I would never have learned that with Dr. McKnight had I not learned to see through her and the kind hand of God behind her. He also sees that God is at work in our lives for the good of the church. 74 and 79, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. The devil works very, very hard in our lives to convince us that it's just you and the wicked. It's you and your tormentor. It's you and that person who hates you and is attacking you and molesting you and, and uh, assaulting you and slandering you. Just you and them. You're alone by yourself. And the psalmist learns to see also God at work, but he also remembers the church watching the whole situation, those who fear God. And he realizes by his, his response to these wicked people, he can either help the church go in a Godward direction, or he can tempt the church to go in the wrong direction. And the psalmist feels his responsibility to be an example. He is his brother's keeper. And so he prays. And the central lesson of the psalm is when men are against you, root yourself in the covenant love of God. Men will fail you, but God's love never will. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant.
Let your mercy come to me, that I may live. For your law is my delight. And I'll never forget with Dr. McKnight, and some of you have heard the story before, I think, but that's okay. Um, it all came to a, a denouement one day because of NHS cutbacks that closed down. So the Ulster Hospital in Donald is, was a, is a tower structure, and the, 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 um, each floor has two wards on it, A and B, and they go up and down. And they were, cut, they were closing a bunch of wards in the middle, and they were empty, just, just empty spaces. But we would cut through there, right, to get to the labs and stuff to pick up results and different things. And I was nipping through these empty wards. And Dr. McKnight cornered me. And it was kind of like that scene, you know, in, uh, in Star Wars when Darth Vader like, I have you now. And he's, kind of, he's coming in, you know, and, the, uh, uh, and Luke's about to get his hiney blown up. And I, I, that was me. I was kind of like, and I was standing against this door of this empty office. And uh, um, Dr. McKnight was, was yelling at me and cursing me out and telling me how everybody hated me in the hospital and so forth and so on. And it was pretty bleak. And I was sort of, oh, no. And then suddenly I'm aware of the door opening behind me. And Dr. Bell, who was the most senior pediatrician in the hospital, happened to pick that particular office in that particular vacant ward for a quiet place to do some dictation where nobody could find her. And suddenly she hears Jean yelling at me, and she opens the door, and Jean's face... The first thing, I, I felt the door open, and then I, I saw the color drain from Jean's face. And uh, Dr. Bell just was... And Jean walks into the room, and I, I, hear, I could hear the tune, but not the words, but it was loud, and Dr. Bell was very upset. And Jean left with her head, head down and her tail between her legs, and she kind of scurried off down the corridor, and Dr. Bell looked at me and said, you two had better stop fighting, and if you don't, one of you is going to be looking for a new job, and it's not going to be you, Neil. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those moments where you're just like, Lord, there's a God in heaven. Um, you know, and uh, it was a glorious moment, and there was rejoicing uh, that day and many days afterwards. Um, but... You know, that's David's testimony. And it can be your testimony too, but you have to remember not to forget the never-failing love of God. It's the centerpiece of the psalm. It's, it's how do you find your center when everything's topsy-turvy and upside down and back to front? You root yourself in the one thing that will never fail you, the one principle that will never evaporate, the one foundation that will never crumble, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And God is determined to be kind to you, to be loving to you, Christian. No matter how long it takes Him, no matter where it takes Him, it'll take Jesus to hell. And no matter what it cost Him, It'll cost him his own son, his darling boy, and yet he will be pleased to crush him because he's so pleased to love you. And that's grace because the last thing you and I deserve is love from God. We only deserve his wrath 
And yet the God of heaven is an amazing, beautiful, delightful, glorious being who gives his love, his steadfast love to those who only deserve his everlasting wrath. And when your life's upside down, inside out and back to front, and you can't find your feet under you, you find your center by going back to the chesed love of God and his compassions. As fast as his feet are, his heart always gets to you first. As a mother has compassion on her baby, as a father has compassion on his wee boy, he's crying down the end of the, of, of the, yard, the guard, garden, yard, garden. So the Lord has compassion on you, Christian. He loves you. And he's telling you that this evening in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what God has told you in the light. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the scriptures. We love the Psalms, O oh God. They're just such beautiful packets of mercy. We get a firm place under our feet when we are in the Psalter. And we pray, O oh God, this evening that you would rub this ointment into our souls. Our souls are dry and sore and hurting. We pray, Father, you will rub this ointment in of your love, your mercy, your compassion, that our hearts might revitalize in the moisturizing grace of God. And we offer these prayers in Christ's name. Amen.